Welcome to Victor's Children, a podcast from so-called Canada talking socialism from below. My name is David Campfield. I live with my partner and cat in Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is in Treaty 1 territory, the traditional territory of Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oja Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and the homeland of the Métis Nation. All those of us in the Canadian state who aren't Indigenous need to commit ourselves to the struggle against settler colonialism. Victor's Children is a member of the Harbinger Media Network, which is a community working to support and promote left podcasts in Canada. Check out other shows like Tech Won't Save Us, Anti-Girl Boss Socials Club, and Alberta Advantage. Uh, you can look at the show's list at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm very happy on this episode of Victor's Children to be joined by two guests to discuss the question of moralism and whether it's a problem for the left. So could you introduce yourself, Vanessa? Hi, um, certainly. So thank you so much for having me. Uh, My name is Vanessa Wills. I am assistant professor of philosophy at George Washington University. Um, And perhaps relevant to this conversation, I'm also the author of Marx's Ethical Vision, um, which is uh, forthcoming in uh, 2023 from Oxford University Press. And Barbie. I'm delighted to be here. I'm a great fan of this podcast, having had a wonderful discussion with uh, with David in the past uh, on it. Um, I'm writing my PhD at Columbia about the decline of visions of the end of capitalism. And I'm interested in about present politics, in what happens in the kind of debris and the rubble um, of, uh, of past hopes of comprehensive social transformation, what happens when it's no longer uh, conceivable to think uh, uh, freedom. And um, I talked in the past with David about one of the symptoms of that rubble. Uh, and I want to talk today about another one, which is uh, the rise of political moralism. All right. So let's dive right into this. Um, and that's what do you think we should understand by moralism when we're talking about politics today? What is moralism? And how would you distinguish moralism from something that wasn't moralism, a non-moralistic approach? I'll jump in. Uh, So I think the answer to this can be very, very big, but some things that I often mean anyway, when I say that uh, a particular kind of political perspective or um, political approach is moralistic or that it is mere moralism, which is a phrase that I use astonishingly often actually, um, is that it is uh, looking to moral judgment as a primary mechanism of social change. That somehow if we can just sort out who's good and who's bad, who's acting rightly and who's acting wrongly, that somehow the bulk of the work <laughs> is done, right, um, of, uh, of determining what, you know, what is necessary in order to create a world that is good, right, <laughs> a world that is arranged rightly. Um, and I think that that leads us into all sorts of uh, models. I mean, one concrete way that I think it's coming up now is, is actually some of the way that we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, where we are sitting in the 
rubble of uh, what is a, a complete defeat, actually, of the working classes, right, by capital. Capital has so far just won this round. Um, business goes on as usual. In fact, it's booming. Profits are, are up, right? Um, and uh, any kind of attempt, you know, taking the U.S. for exi- an example, but this is true, in lots of places, any attempt to use this as a moment to fight for the things that would be necessary to secure public health, like um, uh, actual uh, proper health care, right? Like um, giving people the funds that they need in order to stay home, um, like proper public health messaging around masking, social distancing, et cetera. All of that is, doesn't exist. And what a lot of the discourse about it has devolved into then is determining who the the individual morality of individual actions, right? Um, you know, well, you masked in this context and you didn't do this and you didn't do that, right? Um, without talking about the uh the the sort of the the larger social dynamics that um make are the reasons why we need uh large socially organized institutions and structures to solve public health crises right um making the right kinds of moral judgments is maybe part of the story uh but not anywhere near enough and often a distraction thank you barnaby any thoughts about again about the question of what moralism is and what is not moralism I think that was a great um, sort of introduction from Vanessa. Um, moralism is a long tradition in politics, often associated with religion, um, from Catholic moralism in 17th century France to Protestant moralism in 19th century America, where the key site of politics is imagined as the, the judgment of each individual um, and the judgment of each individual against a yardstick of good behavior, which is usually transhistorical, the eternal very easy to do if you're religious, right? The eternal good and bad. Um, And it often arises, I think interestingly, it often arises at historical moments when there's great concern that high levels of social change are corrupting individual lifestyles. That's certainly the context of classic North American uh, moralistic campaigns uh, in the 19th century. Um, Making individuals, individual behavior set against that yardstick, which is prior to the society, which is this eternal yardstick, making this the key site of politics, importantly, I think, elides lots of the things, misses lots of the things that that we on the left would would traditionally want to talk about as political. So it's a way of talking about individuals rather than, as Vanessa just said, social structures. So so, so you think there's a pandemic on uh, these orphan individuals who are uh, behaving in bad ways that are spreading the virus, and you don't think about the conditions in which individuals feel compelled to uh, uh, go for walks in parks when they should be at home uh, shielding because they don't have any nice uh, space at home or any, any green space they can access safely. Um, so it, it's it's against thinking structure. And the, I think one of the preeminent examples alongside COVID in our moment of that is climate moralism. So it's thinking about climate change by uh, thinking only about the actions of individuals and not also about what kind of... Uh, so talking about the Anthropocene as if the problem is Anthropos, is human beings um, and each of our individual actions and not also talking about the particular 
social, the organization of social relations in which the planet is being ruined, uh, endless capitalist growth. Um, so it's against talking about structure. It's also against talking about history, very relatedly to structure, because it's a way of talking which, which doesn't want to think the historical process of the formation of individuals, why we are the way we are, um, and why we might in the future be different, why we might, under different kinds of conditions, be able to live as better people in, in, in happier, uh, healthier, more fulfilling ways. Um, so it's also, I think, a kind of anti-historical way of thinking it, 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 it looks at a snapshot of the present and asks, is this person good or bad? Um, so it's against structure and history. And it's also importantly, uh, I think very importantly, against thinking about strategy. And this is one of the things that concerns me most. Um, I had a, a, an encounter that I found quite striking. Uh, it's maybe controversial to say. Um, I was giving a, a sort of presentation about Palestine solidarity work in Britain and um, uh, mentioned a contrast uh, that Yasser Arafat had, had long ago mentioned uh, between Palestinian people and Native Americans, um, uh, where he'd said, we will not be like the Cherokee. Um, we will not, we're not going to allow ourselves to be uh, ethnically cleansed on that scale and, and, and utterly uh, destroyed. And someone in the audience was uh, kind of horrified that I'd said this and said, who are you to say, you know, are you saying that, that, that Native American struggles are for nothing, that, that, they're, that they're destroyed? Um, and I said, well, I'm saying that the, the, the position of Native Americans is they underwent a 98% demographic collapse, a massive genocide. And so that means that the kinds of struggles, the kinds of demands that Native Americans can make in the present um, are different from the kinds of demands that Palestinians can make, who still exist, many millions of them, um, in, in historic Palestine um, and, and in refugee camps just beyond it. Um, and what was striking to me was the moralistic opposition to the distinction was um, what kind of person, what kind of speaker do I want to be? Do I want to be seen as someone who is um, uh, uh, saying difficult, inconvenient, uh, uh, tough things um, or not? Well, I'd rather not be that, uh, rather than thinking what are the conditions of the present and what are the strategic possibilities that emerge from the present? And it might actually be that calling for the return of um, Native American sovereignty over New York City, what is now New York City, uh, is, is, is not a politically feasible demand because many of the people who live there uh, have been, have been uh, uh, wiped out in genocides, uh, whereas in Jerusalem to call for this decolonization is. Um, and so I was struck in that instance by the moralistic opposition, not only to thinking about structure and history, but also about strategy in favor of a focus on not only the purity of the individuals that we're judging, but also our own purity as political actors, uh, which can often be a way of talking about politics that I think gets away from uh, uh, thinking strategically in tough in tough settings. Um, slogans which make sense in certain conditions don't make sense in others because we've been defeated and have to think the conditions uh, for future struggles after those defeats. So that's maybe a controversial example, but um, I think that strategy, structure, history are all things that, that moralism is very bad at thinking. Right. So if, if moralism is very pervasive uh, in our politics today, let's focus a little bit on the left in particular. Um, and I'd be interested in your thoughts about you know, to what extent it's a problem for the left, in what ways it's a problem, if there are other ways you haven't mentioned, um, other examples that might stand out to you in terms of uh, ways in which this really matters? Um, yeah, I think it is a problem for the left. <laughs> uh, um, I mean, picking up on what I was saying earlier and on some of the themes in, uh, in Barnaby's comments, I mean, I think it's oftentimes uh, just a real distraction. Um, I mean, thinking of thinking ahead to just some examples, I think one of the places where it completely distorts discussion and and makes it all, you know almost to the point of not worth having um, are many of the conversations that um, center around voting. Um, I'm most familiar, of course, with the U.S. context. 
Um, and of course, the U.S. context when it comes to voting is is arguably unique. Um, and you know, every four years, or maybe every two, but especially every four, and we have the presidential election. Um, if you attempt to point out the shortcomings, right, of the candidates on offer, um, one of two things happens, right? One, um, hardly, um, it's very hard to have a conversation about the facts about the candidates. Um, that's in part because the facts are embarrassing to the candidates and because they're, I mean, every four years, always, <laughs> right? The facts about um, the, you know, the Democratic Party candidates are um, always very embarrassing to them. <laughs> um, and so um, talking about those, talking about those facts, you know, saying about um, somebody like um, Biden, wasn't he a major architect of the uh, um criminal justice complex, you know, didn't, didn't he, um, wasn't he behind the war on drugs, right? Um, pointing out these kinds of things, pointing out um, about Obama. Um, what do you mean he's an anti-war president? Doesn't it say right there in his platform that he uh, sees it as one of his aims to project U.S. military power abroad? Um, pointing out these things um, is um, problematic, right, when the the overarching framework of the conversation is um, that there's one morally correct thing to do, and it is to get the Democrats in power. And the moral correctness of that is completely <clears throat> disassociated from what the Democrats are, what they do when they get in power, what their actual relationship towards the Re Republican Party is, um, it's true that Democrats and Republicans are not the same, um, but it's also true that the Democrats uh, put a lot of their effort into enabling the Republicans, right? Enabling the far right in this country. Um, it's it's really, really difficult uh, to, to have a real conversation about the Democratic Party because um, the 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 conversation around voting, if it can even be called a conversation, it's usually just a screaming match, um, devolves into sorting out who are, who's good and who's bad, <laughs> right? Um, and this is often a kind of um, top-down um, infiltration, right, of day-to-day -day conversations that that is informed by messaging that comes directly from the Democratic Party itself, right? And the things that they have to say about the left and the things that they have to say about people who question um, whether uh, the policies that they enact are any good, right? And the And one of the things that I think is maybe helpful for listeners too, who might be more or less familiar with these terms, you know, when, at least for me, when I talk about moralism, I'm, I'm talking about something very different from morality as such, right? Um, I think morality uh, does matter and is important. I think it's highly relevant <laughs> um, what the moral thing to do is. Um, but um, 
the moral landscape is much more complicated uh, than uh, trying to sort of um, immediately shunt every conversation into sorting out, well, who's good and who's bad, who's right and who's wrong. Um, allows us to do. And um, I mean, one example of this, you see a little bit less of this now, but especially in the aftermath of Hillary Clinton's loss, where there was this messaging that essentially anybody who criticizes Hillary Clinton is actually an agent of Putin, like, <laughs> which sounds like almost like absurd now, um, but was like a pretty common thing that, you know, somehow you're doing Putin's work for him, right? Um, and what is the, what is the sort of um, role that's being played there by that figure of Putin? It's like, well, you're evil. To criticize the Democrats is evil. Um, and you know, obviously, one of the things that that does is distract us um, from actually making real moral determinations. Um, can we can we talk about uh, the um, impact of a, a a woman candidate for president being this kind of feminist moment at the same time that we know what Hillary Clinton's policies have actually meant? For women around the country and around the world, um, are we are we allowed to have that conversation? Um, and one of the things that that this kind of moralism does is uh, make it the case that the answer to that question is no, right? Or to attempt to um, have a, a more uh, concrete and nuanced analysis of what the real um, impacts are of these policies and these parties for people is immediately suspect. And so this is, this is to me, like one of the most um, important, um, but, you know, it's kind of betrayals of this kind of moralistic language and moralistic way of approaching politics um, that it poses as being deeply, deeply concerned um, with goodness um, but when its main central function is to obscure, right, the actual moral landscape that we're all acting within. I certainly agree uh, with Vanessa's examples. I One thing I've said to my students in uh, Columbia is uh, when election time comes around, they come under lots of finger-wagging pressure um, from uh, professors and from the university that they must vote. Um, and I say to classes of students, you can if you like, uh, or you could also choose not to vote, because uh, that would also be a political act. You could decide, as I think would be quite reasonable in lots of elections in the state of New York, that the most positive possible outcome here would be a very low turnout um, and a, a, a statement of disaffection from, from all the candidates. And the kind of horrified reaction that I sometimes get to that from students makes clear that they don't think of the act of voting as a basically political act. So it's not about how they can change their conditions. Uh, it's a basically moral act. It's about what it says about them. And as I said, my problem with moralism is, is, is both that it makes the objects, the, 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 um, the, the people we're looking at, um, uh, uh, individuals who are judged on whether they live up to standards of right and wrong, um, rather than looking at social processes that, that shape our world. And also that it makes the subject, me, uh, a person who has to prove my, 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 my goodness uh, in the here and now, uh, my purity, 
um, which I think is politically damaging for all kinds of reasons. I think it damages the kinds of coalitions we need to build between people who accept that we're all in in in, in some something like Primo Levi's grey zone, uh, where none of us live in a in a state of uh, of purity um, and rightness. But but absolutely, the way people thought about voting. I find in America is is intensely moralistic. It's about showing that they are good by voting for the side that they've coded as good. Um, it's all over the place on the left, and that's why I think it's important to discuss this to answer your your question, um, David. We, we could think of so many examples. I mean, in um, uh, those of us who live in big cities, especially in the global north, um, know the intensity of discussions around gentrification, for example, in which a complex social process of uh, the children of middling layers of the bourgeoisie especially um, are unable to afford to live in the places that they grew up and so move into other kinds of areas. And this process of the remaking of the, of the class and spatial map is often narrated heavily in moralistic terms. These gentrifiers are assholes. Um, uh, we could think about um, the debates that, that, that we've just had in Britain for the last more than five years obsessively over Brexit, where what began as an argument between two wings of British capital about the best way to secure high profitability for British capital, whether it's through close links with Europe or with the rest of the world and the United States, was narrated quickly in not those terms of political economy, but in terms of moralism. So uh, white northern town dwelling voters who voted to leave the EU were racist scum, or uh, East London hipsters were out of touch cosmopolitan scum. Um, and it is precisely because that argument wasn't only about political economy among two wings of the capitalist class, because there are not 30 million capitalists in Britain and 30 million people voted in the referendum, that moralism steps in to explain that kind of gap, the other thing that's going on there, which is all kinds of complicated allegiances that people feel to place, to space, to ideas of the past and the future, um, which are narrated not sympathetically and not trying to explain and understand, uh, but trying to judge. And so uh, one of moralism's problems, uh, the word has, has traditionally, the, the, yeah, the word has traditionally denoted a kind of judgmentalism, um, uh, which, which is, a, I think, a problem in building a politics of, of solidarity that, that wants to understand where people are coming from. The preeminent example of uh, the preeminent examples, I should say plural, of moralism on the left, I think have, have often come from uh, what gets called identity politics um, in, in sometimes damaging terms because it's, it's implied that um, there's something called feminism and something called anti-racism uh, and, and those are like one thing, uh, whereas in fact it's the historically changing forms of, and they're often counterposed to something called class politics, though there's clearly an identity politics of class, I think. Um, in, in fact, these things, feminisms, anti-racisms, class politics, have all been transformed in their in the languages they use over the last 40 or 50 years. Um, and today we find a lot of focus on the purification of the individual, um, uh, checking one's privilege, uh, avoiding microaggressions, where in the past there was much more focus on the macroaggressions of, of, of state violence and um, what Shivananda and the British anti-racist called the racism that kills um, of, uh, of borders and, and, and cops and so on. Um, and um, my particular involvement in this was through debates on anti-Semitism in Britain, um, where it was striking to see the transformation from 20th century ways of thinking about anti-Semitism that asked critical theories that asked how it was rooted in the social structure um, to um, a, an intense focus on, ice, on, on, on on the use of definitions of racism to find individuals who could be coded not as the, the, the problem of anti-Semitism is not at the level of an action or a, a particular spe a speech act, but an individual whose essence was that they were an anti-Semite and who therefore had to be purged from a particular social space like the Labour Party in British debates. Um, and I thought of that as a symptom of a, of a much wider moralism um, in the way that um, 
um, that, that a lot of anti-racist politics, and as I say, feminist politics, and, 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 and what passes for class politics too sometimes operates where it becomes a question of your class uh, loyalties or about, uh, about the purity of your accent or your, um, uh, your, your, uh, your shopping habits. Um, uh, and I think also about uh, debates about, I'm quite interested in thinking about debates about sex and sexuality where um, if in if in in one in a kind of caricaturish binary, if some feminists in the 1980s and 90s said that um, uh, certain sexual preferences emerged out of oppressive uh, social structures, whether it's race play or, or, or women wanting to be dominated, um, and might reproduce those oppressive structures, and if feminists today often want to say uh, that we shouldn't criticize people for their choices and preferences, what is elided in the space between those two positions is is, is the, the the possible coexistence of those positions, which would say um, how is this desire that I have politically produced by things that I might want ultimately to get rid of, uh, and also how is it my desire and therefore I needn't be condemned and have the and, and shouted at for it, um, and that is the space of a non-moralistic politics. That is a political approach to thinking desire, uh, to thinking life, uh, rather than a moralistic approach, which says you must choose between thinking what you, <laughs> your preferences uh, are, are shouldn't damn you to hell. Um, uh, uh, and, and if I want to say that as a moralist, then I must say I'm pure and good and perfect. Um, or if I want to say there's anything uh, uh, regretful or problematic about um, um, things I desire or ways I behave or, uh, or, or, um, or, or facts about my treatment of myself and others, um, then um, if if there's anything undesirable about that, then I must be damned to hell. That's the kind of dangerous space of moralism, which inhibits, I think, the work of politics, which is actually the work of changing not only the world, but also ourselves. Well, I think this brings us to the question of whether moralism has become more of a problem for the left than it has been in the past. Do you have any thoughts about whether that's the case? And if it is more a problem, what has created this condition that we might find ourselves in? I guess I'm not convinced that it's become more of a problem. I mean, I mainly because I suspect that um, it's easy to fall into a kind of presentism about such, you know, kids these days, right? <laughs> about about this sort of thing. Um, I mean, I I guess like I, I, I might actually I may even answer the question definitively definitively in the negative because I don't, for example, think that the left is more moralistic than it was in the '90s at all. Um, I think there's um, much more um, broad understanding, awareness, and willingness to engage um, with uh, the, with issues of structural problems and structural solutions, right? And, and um, I mean, let's take the example of the conversation about climate change, which uh, used to be completely individualistic. I mean, the in terms of the mainstream conversation, right? And and that was again because of the role of capital, right? So um, all of the sort of uh, recycling messages and the push um, to individualize uh, things like recycling, reduce, reuse, and recycle. Those were actually messages that were um, being promoted by industry. Um, and we still hear those, but I think that they do much less to dominate the conversation about climate change. I think it is much more um, widely understood that 
This is a problem of industry that our individual solutions aren't going to cut it. Now, unfortunately, part of the reason that it is more widely understood is that we're staring it in the face and it's just um, glaringly obvious that, you know, I do recycle. <laughs> like, I mean, I'll give you an example. Like I, I actually drove to the, to the city dump a couple of days ago, um, and dropped off a bunch of electronics recycling. And, and I, I did, I felt good. I felt like a good and virtuous person. I patted myself on the back, you know? Um, and you know, because like, that is like a normal kind of human response, you know, to feeling like you're like, you did the, you did the thing, you know, and you contributed and you did your part, you know, and I don't want to poo-poo that. Like that is a a human good um, uh, feeling that should be encouraged. It's one that any communist society is going to rely on, the feeling of satisfaction that people have from contributing, right? From doing things that are part of the picture of how we make a better world. So I you know, I also really want to be clear that um, I'm I'm not like some sort of hard ass out here who's like nothing you do bad. You know, like um, with the, that's a good response, and we we want people to have it. Um, but like any kind of uh, like any emotion on the spectrum of human emotions, um, you know, ideally we want it to be uh, something that is attached in some way to also a correct understanding, you know, of the because I can have a feeling of satisfaction um, and be doing the wrong thing, right? Um, and I think moralism, you know, often leads us in that direction. Um, but that's a little bit of an aside. My point is that um, I don't I don't think that the that it can be said that the left is like in general um, a whole lot more moralistic than it than it was at some point before. Um, <clears throat> I know there's um, all sorts of um, consternation about what uh, what some have called cancel culture, right? Um, and the sort of social media, um, the intensity at times of these social media conversations. Um, I think that there's, um, of course, you know, there can always be a uh, a risk um, in any kind of social environment uh, of um, uh, the sort of sense that people want of belonging um, then being attached to poor behaviors, right? Um, and, you know, and, and, and that can, uh, that there can be a sense of like, belonging in, we all agree that this is the bad person, right? Who did the bad thing. Um, and that can be um, uh, counterproductive, right? And unfortunate and something that can be dehumanizing even as well, right? When it doesn't allow um, for the possibility of redemption or conversations or, or things of that nature. Um, but I, I think that um, there's far more that's been gained uh, from the kind of online social media conversations led, of course, often by young people, right? People who right now are in their teens and 20s and so on, um, who have greatly expanded the conversations um, and the concepts that we can use to talk about um, 
identity, to talk about queerness, to talk about um, the uh, different kinds of abuse, right? Different kinds of um, uh, uh, different ways that we can um, uh, stand up for ourselves, right? In these oppressive, abusive contexts. I think there's so much there uh, that is extremely positive. And I think that that gets lost in some of the um, panic about cancel culture. Um, and I think that's no accident, right? That oftentimes the people who sort of raise those um, concerns about quote unquote cancel culture, oftentimes that is tied to the fact that uh, all of the, the all of the sort of like richness that I think has been added to our moral vocabulary by these kinds of online spaces, you know, that is exactly what uh, some of these critics of, of quote unquote cancel culture want to um, uh, suppress or want to belittle um, because it gives us a, a, a more um, sophisticated way of thinking about our social world. So I, you know, I've, I think, of course, it's not, you know, like any social phenomenon, it's not without its negative um, aspects. Um, but I think it's really important to, to think critically about what it has contributed. Barnaby. I think there has been a, a an important historical change, though I agree that things are broadly better on the left now than they were in the 1990s, which I think was the kind of nadir of, uh, of, of moralism. I think we've rediscovered some confidence in talking about social structures. Why the focus, though, on individuals now? Um, I think it's important to be kind of sympathetic. I think it's important to ask non-moralistically why people turn to ways of talking and thinking, including moralism, um, to ask what are the conditions in which those ways of talking and thinking make sense. Um, and I think that a focus on individuals you can name and see um, and uh, uh, your own behaviours and the behaviours of, of, of people around you makes sense as a site of your politics and a period where a grander focus on turning the whole world upside down seems quite hard to imagine. So I think it's telling that there were less uh, predominantly moralistic languages, though they existed in, in all kinds of politics, there were less predominantly moralistic languages in the politics of, say, um, feminism and anti-racism in the 1960s and 70s than I think is the case today. And I think that's, and I think that's, that there's, there's good reason for that, um, that um, it, it's, it's useless to tell someone, as I just did, uh, you shouldn't focus on the microaggressions of your colleague, you should focus on the macroaggressions of a racist state that uh, uh, keep, keeps people apart on the basis of a border regime, for example. Um, if people will turn around to you and say, yeah, but I have no hope of being able to change that border regime in any meaningful way. And this is why I think the 1990s, the, the arch moment of the end of history and, 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 and pessimism on the left uh, was, was the high point of, of moralism, um, which is now in some kind of uh, recession. Um, if people could turn around to you and say, well, I don't really believe I'm going to turn the world upside down. What can I do instead? Then a politics that focuses on more immediate targets becomes uh, more appealing. I think people are desperate for villains that they can name and with whom they can effectively tussle, which moralism gives in treating, for example, the morass of Trumpism in the United States um, in imagining a West Virginia coal miner as the driver of American racism uh, or the Brooklyn dwelling 30 year old as the driver of DNA 
industrialization. Both of these kinds of positions we could think of as uh, politically damaging and as wrongheaded. Um, but if you're trying to deal with those problems without the confidence that you can uh, uh, really turn the world upside down, uh, then I think they make a certain kind of sense. So I read them as, as, as coming out of a moment where there are no real coalitions across the global North and South battling for, uh, um, uh, in, in any kind of realistic prospect, optimistic that they're about to win the end of capitalism and all oppressive social relations. And so, um, uh, talk of individual bankers instead of a whole uh, corrupt system of capital and individual billionaires uh, becomes an easier target. Uh, and then the targets get easier still. If you want to talk about racism, you've got Justine Sacco with 170 Twitter followers who gets on an airplane just after tweeting something uh, stupid and bigoted um, and then gets off the flight to find that she's lost her job and and, and been cancelled. Um, uh, and I don't think it's the case. I really agree with Vanessa. I don't think it's the case. That I think it's too easy to say social media is the cause of that. Um, uh, the ways that social media ends up operating <laughs> exist in a context of wider social and political facts um, and, and the use of Twitter uh, for a kind of playground dynamic in which everyone gets to be the bully, um, I think emerges in a context in which people are looking for villains to tussle with who they can actually tackle. If you want to do something about racism and you don't think you can actually dissolve the police department, you might be able to get Justine Sacco, who tweeted something stupid, sacked. And then there are more serious examples. Family life is fraying. Um, you can blame trans people. Uh, jobs and public services are withering. You can blame migrants. These are all, I think, attempts to grapple with something which feels feasible um, in a moment when um, uh, it's kind of the success in a moment when structural social transformation doesn't seem feasible. So it's the kind of successor to the dropout culture uh, which emerged in the wake of, of optimism for some people in the, in the 60s and 70s. Um, I'm just going to remove myself uh, from society. There's some of that in terms of the attempt of a language of safe spaces or whatever in an unsafe world. Um, uh, but but it's, um, it, it's the successor to that kind of attempt to remove ourselves from a society we don't think we can change, which is an attempt to purify those bits of the society that we do think we can change, which is ourselves and those immediately around us. The irony of that position is that, of course, we can't actually change ourselves and those around us in any fundamental way without changing the kinds of social conditions in which we live and act in the ways that we do. Can I so just, it seems, uh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, so it seems like a kind of pessimism, but it's in fact a kind of utopianism. I think that's how I think about moralism. Yeah, if I can just jump in for a moment, because um, I I agree with so much of, of what you just said. Um, but there's one thing, like, I... And this is something I'm still thinking through for myself. I mean, I think I'm prepared to be more um, not only sympathetic to resentment, <laughs> um, but um, but but even to think that there's probably something uh, like objectively um, useful about it in some case, like like um, like you know the example of billionaires and you know people sort of hating uh, Elon Musk, right, or hating Jeff Be Bezos. Um, you know, there's one way in which that is uh, focusing on an individual rather than a structure, right? Um, but there's also, I think, a sense in which um, it's it's uh, there's something. There's something truth tracking <laughs> about that resentment, right? About the specific targeted resentment. Look at this guy, you know. Um, and I, um, 
it, like I say, I don't have a kind of settled view about this sort of thing. Um, but I, I know that my reaction is usually is not to um, sort of talk people out of it, right? Or to, or to say, well, you're focusing on this individual when you should be focusing on the system because uh, the, you know, in, to put it in a very, in very, um, banal terms, of course, the system is made up of the actions of these individuals, especially when we talk about billionaires, where you could, you could like number them, you know, like the individuals themselves actually have quite an outsized um, impact. Um, and, and I'm thinking also, you know, you, you, uh, Barnaby, you gave the case of, um, speaking to someone who's concerned about uh, microaggressions that they're experiencing at work um, and how that might um, sort of be a distraction from thinking about the macroaggressions. And I wonder whether that's um, not an, an unnecessarily stark opposition, right? Where, um, you know, I could imagine in that context saying, you know, like, yeah, like that, you know, that sucks that that person did that to you. Um, and, uh, and using that kind of empathy, right. As a starting point. Um, and yeah, let's talk about why, you know, what is it that's going on that allows that person to feel like it's okay for them to talk to you like that and kind of make the connection in that way. Because I think that, um, you know, we live our lives, uh, on the micro scale, <laughs> you know? And so, um, you know, I think that it it is it can be very important to um, have theories and and politics that can make sense of that micro scale and treat it like it like it does matter because to the to the individual micro person, right? You know, like which we all are. Um, that's the that is the primary um, lens uh, through which we experience anything about the world, right, is on that micro scale. So I was just, I mean, you put it in very stark terms, because I think you were trying to make a point, but I was just curious, like, you know, what you might say in response to any of that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with with all of that. Um, and I'm glad we're getting onto this point. So I wanted to sort of set up the contrast in clear terms, because I think this language can often be used vaguely. I wanted to be to be clear about what moralism is. Um, and but actually it helps to clarify what moralism is to 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 clarify what it isn't. It isn't any talk about individuals or about agents as opposed right. to talking about structure, mm -hmm. right? So I think the question is not um should we talk about individuals at all? Um and the question isn't even um are you talking about individuals as part of pointing towards emancipation, universal emancipation, or just in the interest of punishing those individuals? Because I think that hate, even not just resentment, but hate can play an important role in, in, in radical politics. Uh, I think the question is instead, have you identified the place of that individual in the structure properly, or are you inflating that place as a sort of substitute for politics? So, um, uh, so think, for example, about um, a horrible case in, that we had here in Britain of uh, the, the son of, our, of the Queen, um, Prince Andrew, uh, being apparently complicit in child sex trafficking. Um, and he gives an interview to, to the BBC about this. Um, and it's just extraordinary to watch uh, the comfort and confidence with which he basically admits his complicity. Um, and I think that it's a, it's, it's a perfectly right and politically important reaction to that interview as people who are opposed to the domination of some people by others to be disgusted by that person um to what it's an even understandable reaction that i certainly feel to want that person to suffer um for for, for the awful things that he's done but 
some of the most interesting things in that interview were the, were the ways in which he expressed his understanding of what he'd done, where he was asked if he was sorry. And he said he was sorry because he'd let down his family uh, by, by putting out a bad image. And what was telling about that was he wasn't sorry that he had uh, uh, hurt, probably for life, uh, young women, because those people didn't matter to him. They weren't kind of fully human because they weren't of his class. Um, he was sorry that he'd uh, let down his family. Um, and when he was asked why he kept staying with Jeffrey Epstein after he became a convicted paedophile, he said loyalty to friends was his most important virtue. And so what we can see in that interview, I think, is both all sorts of individual horrors in this person, Prince Andrew, but also horrors that we can root in his form by a certain kind of very perverted and distorted class, uh, the experience of being a member of that uh, very parasitic family um, in Britain, um, whose, whose life is all about the reproduction of social status and the assumption of their own superiority. And so in that sense, we can, yes, say that Prince Andrew is a kind of victim, just as everyone is, of their social conditions. Uh, once we get away from the victim-villain binary, in which to be a victim is to be pure and good and true, and, and, and to be a villain is to be uh, contemptible and, and bad and evil. And once we get out of that binary to ask questions about the social conditions that make all of us, then I think think we can talk sensitively about the in, about individuals and their agency, including your individual colleague or neighbour who uh, hurls racist abuse at you, and, and not shut down someone complaining about that by saying, exactly as Vanessa says, not shut them down by saying, well, actually, haven't you thought about state violence? Um, but try to connect um, the individual, um, the micro, to the macro. And it's that connection, which both a certain kind of crude structural language and, on the other extreme, moralism refuses, the connection between our everyday experiences of one another and grand social processes. And climate moralism is a very good example of that complexity, right? Um, because uh, one left response to the incessant urge to recycle uh, is to say 100 companies produce 70% of global emissions. Um, now, there's a, there's a truth to that, which is, which is partly uh, angry and, and furious and focused on agents, not just structures. Um, uh, the bosses of these companies make decisions. The bosses of Chevron made, made uh, sorry, um, of Exxon uh, made decisions for many years to uh, uh, suppress their own climate research. They could have made different decisions. Um, uh, but it's also deceptive because those 100 companies are only producing all those emissions because they're making goods that, that most of us are buying. Um, so we have to navigate the reality of climate change in a way that talks both about um, uh, all of our responsibility, uh, as, as the moralists might do in telling us all to recycle, and talks about the responsibility of the wealthy, as the left moralists might do in, in, in pinpointing individuals alone, and talks about a whole social structure of capitalist accumulation in which bosses are limited in their freedom of movement, and we're all certainly limited in our freedom of maneuver um, uh, in terms of our actions because uh, we have to reproduce our conditions of life uh, under constraints produced by market dependence and, and, and a commodity society. So I think it's a, the, the, op the, the opposition to moralism is not about a kind of um, simple negation that says uh, individuals don't matter, agents don't matter, but it's about saying there's a particularly moralistic way of talking about individual agency, uh, which is a way that is premised in judgmentalism rather than sympathy and understanding. Um, uh, that's one of its great problems, I think. Um, and it's a way that rules out talking about structure, talking about strategy, because it's instead about the purity of the political agent. Um, um, and, and it denies our, I think that the last thing I'll say about this is that I think denying our complicity in politically troubling forms of life um, becomes a real problem because the, the thing that can rule out comradeship across those lines of class and race and gender um, um, and so on, um, the, the, the thing that, um, uh, that, that can rule out that possibility of comradeship um, is a, uh, an insistence on a, a kind of a, a purity um, which is ultimately anti-political um, uh, or, or which leads to a kind of self-loathing 
um, uh, uh, if, if we find ourselves to be impure. And I think that these are damaging impulses for politics, even as I have some sympathy both for the conditions in which they feel compelling to people and also for the grain of truth that they actually hold. Vanessa, any thoughts in response to that? Uh, no, no, that was uh, exactly uh, that was uh, exactly the sort of thing I was hoping to elicit and uh, very well said. Yeah. Okay, well, um, we've touched on this a little bit, but I'm wondering if we can focus now about how as socialists we respond to moralism as something that we, we regularly encounter. Do you have any thoughts about how we can respond to it constructively? And when we're saying we're rejecting moralism, does that mean we're also saying there's no place for ethics or morality in, in our socialist politics? Mm-hmm. Either of you uh, like jump on that? Yeah, I guess I'll I'll jump in on the second question actually, if that's all right, um, and which has some implications for the first. So, I think all the time um, as a as a communist who uh, and a and an and a ethicist, which is a strange combination to be, um, you know, I think about this all the time because Marx uh, says um, Marx and Engels uh, say that the communists do not preach morality. And I think that that um, uh, is useful to keep in mind as as one guide in how socialists should respond to moralism. Um, But I think that it's not it, it still does not imply that there's no place for ethics or morality in socialist politics. Um, The reason that Marx says this is that um, the working class don't need morality preached to them um, because the conditions of the emancipation of the working class are famously the conditions of the emancipation of humanity. They are the conditions in which human beings can flourish, can um, be all that they have the capacity to make of themselves. They are the conditions of pro-social human um, behavior and and flourishing, right? Um, and so for the the for the working class, um, what we're talking about are the conditions that allow it to throw off its oppressors, throw off its exploiters, and uh, and produce those circumstances in which they have the um, the 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 means of a good, rich, and um, self. Uh, uh, developing life, right, where they are constantly um, uh, producing and reproducing themselves as more and more complex persons that have a range of capacities that are in in a state of in principle limitless development, right? And this just what I'm describing just is right um, the ethical, right, in the kind of Aristotelian sense. It's the notion that human beings have. Um, and a kind of essential character as self-changing beings. And those are, and the conditions of the um, emergence of that nature are what we want to produce. Um, So this is, this is what's behind this, this statement, right? Um, That the communists do not preach morality to the working class. You know, communists, uh, the work of communists is to, is to describe and to help usher along, right? And to help theorize and to, and to help lead where, where appropriate, right? Um, The, uh, the struggle, right? To produce those conditions um, 
which just are completely coincident with the self-interest of working people and therefore don't need to be construed in strictly moral terms um, as a kind of uh, abstract injunction, right, to, to act in such and such a way. Um, there, uh, there's no sacrifice of self-interest uh, for the working class. Um, now, um, if it's true, though, that um, mor morality or what's morally required is coincident with the um, conditions of flourishing of, of human beings, um, then it's very much worth thinking about. Um, and uh, because what we are doing when we do morality um, is thinking about what are the conditions that of the flourishing of human beings and how do we produce those conditions um, given the circumstances in which we currently exist. Um, for me, that's, for me, that is the place of morality in socialist politics. It's tying, it's, it's tying, not even tying, it is recognizing, grounding, you know, reaffirming, centering the place of socialism um, as a human endeavor, right? Um, and that is important when we are engaged in conversations that want to um, belittle and diminish socialism as some sort of niche interest or some sort of um, ideological um, pet project, right? Um, it's it's none of that, right? Socialism is um, nothing less than uh, the, um, the 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 struggle to realize human existence, right? To realize human potential, to make it to make our world as fully human as possible, and to make ourselves as fully human as possible. Um, and so um, that that for me is, you know, that is what I have found really because I've been thinking about this stuff for a long time. I keep I don't lose interest in it. And that's what keeps me um, uh, obsessed in a way, you know, like with this question, um, because I, I think that. It has to be understood not as something separate from socialist politics. Moral mo morality, properly understood, is socialist politics, and uh, and so that's the that's the way to think about it. And so to go back to that question of how should socialists respond to moralism, um, we should respond to moralism as a an ideological betrayal of, of, of humanity, right? Like um, we should think of moralism as um, a, um, a, a kind of um, an intruder or a kind of um, uh, a fake. What I want is some fancy word for a fake, right? Um, it, it, it claims, it presents itself as being concerned with the good and it has no real connection to the good. Um, it takes our uh, human instinct for acting well towards others, for wanting to behave in ways that are worthy of virtue, of, of being considered virtuous, that to want to behave in ways that are worthy of praise. Um, we want to um, be good, right? I, I think that's like, uh, you know, we want to be good. Um, and it takes that, you know, very, very um, 
uh, innocuous kind of uh, human desire and it hijacks it. Um, and it ties it to a completely distorted worldview that is flat and that flattens our um, ability to understand all of the all of the nuance of the actual moral landscape that we operate within. Um, and so I think we should uh, uh, respond to moralism by always calling it out, by always pointing out how it is not what it presents itself to be. I mean, that's the... If there's anything that Marxist theorists should be good at, um, it is pointing out ways in which things are not what they appear, right? And moralism is not what it appears. Um, it is the refusal of real moral thought. Hmm. So I um, I think that Marx's one of Marx's important achievements is to craft a non-moralistic socialism. Um, that is to say. Um, a, a, a way of thinking about capitalism and the critique of capitalism in which uh, the problem is not limited to the activities of individuals. And it might help as well as the distinction that Vanessa used, that Marx also uses between the moral and morality and, on the other hand, moralism and moralizing, where moralism and moralizing are making the moral and morality uh, the whole stuff of your politics, uh, rather than incorporating them in some position alongside other things. It also might help to introduce a distinction between morality, which has historically tended to focus on the judgment of individuals, and ethics more broadly. Um, in, 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 in his opposition, I think, um, to moralizing and perhaps also even to morality itself, um, Marx thinks that the critique of capitalism isn't about the prob problems simply of some individuals who are just Tager in Marx's term, bearers of, um, of, of, of the social relations that produce them. And also that the answer um, isn't to focus on the moral purification of, uh, of, of the oppressed and exploited. But I think most fundamentally, his divergence, the kind of found, the kind, yeah, the basic divergence from moralistic ways of thinking, socialism and communism, is that Marx roots communism in the possibilities of the present rather than blaming that present for failing to adhere to a standard set outside it. Um, so I sometimes think uh, some problem with, so the way that some analytic uh, uh, moral and political philosophers will sometimes talk about the normative foundations um, of, uh, of, of, of ideas, as if first we, we come up with our, analytically and even chronologically, first we come up with our uh, uh, normative commitments, we decide what is good and bad, and then we turn to look at the world and see how far it, it, it meets those, those standards. Um, I don't think Marx thinks like that. I think it's very striking that... Um, uh, having said that, that morality is the product of, of, of particular epochs, um, that, that different epochs have different moral standards, even that, you know, in, in some very striking passages that fraud is, 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 is immoral in the world of, the, um, of, of, of commodities and so would slavery be in a world of wage labour, but not in a world um, of, 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 uh, of slave societies. Um, uh, not Marx isn't saying he thinks slavery is ever okay, but that morality is a standard uh, produced by particular historical moments. I think Marx is consistent in that because I think his own norm, I don't, I don't think this means he doesn't have norms. I don't think it means he doesn't have commitments about what's good and bad. Um, he doesn't think that, that socialism and communism are superior to capitalism because they simply emerge organically out of it and they just come next in some historical arc, which is defined without normative preferences. But the normative preferences are immanent to, are created by 
um, the kind of society in which he lives. So I think his norms are things like free association, uh, even very clearly in the Grundrisse, free individuality or rich individuality. And he says very clearly that these are um, uh, possibilities created by Bürgerliche Gesellschaft, what he called by bourgeois society, what we might now call capitalism. Um, um, the, the, the idea of the individual, the idea of um, free association beyond kind of feudal limits um, on, uh, on, on, on who, can, who can be with whom. Um, um, so I think that Marx gives us an exciting kind of project in thinking a non-moralistic socialism, also importantly, a non-economistic socialism, for example, um, uh, because it's a, a, a politics that is about uh, human freedom, but, but makes its norms internal to or produced by the world, um, and so finds its possibilities in the present, rather than standing outside the present and lambasting it for failing to live up to standards that were developed outside it, uh, which is how Marx thinks of, for example, Christian socialism, so-called. Um, and, and I think if done right, that becomes a very powerful political tool. So uh, some of the uh, reaction against that strand in Marx. You think, for example, of uh, Jerry Cohen's late work, the, the, the Marx scholar who, 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 towards the end of his life, started trying to recover the category of utopia and utopianism. Um, uh, I think, not coincidentally, that that this this kind of work often comes in moments of political despair and difficulty and defeat, in which it isn't easy to identify um, a great grand march of progress. Um, and instead you start to say, okay, we need ideas of the good here because it's not all just happening organically. Well, it never happens organically, uh, the, the, the victory of, uh, of, of the oppressed over their oppressors. Um, but, uh, but the danger Marx saw in focusing on um, the standards of good and evil uh, um, uh, is, is both losing sight of the way that those standards are always uh, produced by particular historical moments and then and, and sort of making them eternal um, and also bringing them to the present and judging the present for failing to adhere to them uh, rather than finding possibilities for political transformation in the present. So I think Marx thinks, I mean, he often thinks when he talks about moralizing that this is not a very good way of doing politics. It's not a very effective way of actually making change happen. Of course, if done wrong, if you're just a Marxist uh, after Marxist time declaring the great movement of history will be on your side and it doesn't seem to be, uh, then you're also not being very politically effective. Um, so this isn't to say that anything that isn't moralism uh, is fine. Um, I also think that importantly, communism is about making us free and not just making us good, um, uh, or, or even more importantly for Marx about making us free than making us good. You know, that line in, um, uh, Vanessa was, was, was quoting that section in the sort of patchwork of texts that are known to us as the German ideology, um, where, where Marx and Engels uh, and others who actually contributed to them um, uh, say that uh, communists don't preach morality. I mean, they say um, egoism and altruism are both necessary forms, as I remember it, of the self-assertion of individuals in, in different circumstances. Um, so uh, they're opposed to making a priority out of our sense of uh, uh, the good and the bad individual, because I think they want instead to free individuals from those conditions of domination and dependence and alienation um, in which we have come to relate to each other in ways that hurt us and hurt one another and are inimical, yes, to use that Aristotelian language, yes, inimical to our flourishing. Um, but so it's not a conception of freedom in the sort of liberal individualistic sense, um, or even in one sense that's recently become popular, a pure kind of non-domination account. Um, it is a, a, I think it's a, it's, it's a broader sense of, um, of the things that we, uh, the freedom that we can have together, uh, the, the individuality that we can have in, in, in happy community. Um, but I think that this, none of this is, is, is colored as moral um, in Marx, because it's about not 
purifying our souls as, as, as the goal of politics, um, or certainly not as any kind of immediate goal of politics, but rather overcoming those conditions in which we're made unfree and miserable. Vanessa, do you have any short thoughts in response to that? No. Uh, yeah. Um, just uh, agreement. <laughs> okay, then I guess maybe to move towards ending this really fascinating discussion, um, I'd be interested in any further thoughts you might have about the place of ethics for socialists and how, as socialists, we should approach ethics in broad terms. And, of course, recognizing that many people listening to this um, will not have previously read about, thought about different schools of thought or anything mm-hmm. like that with respect to ethics and morality. Yeah, I guess I'm not I'm not sure how much I have to add to my my earlier comments on on the sort of um the question of whether there's a a place for for ethics um and morality in socialist politics. Um I mean, one th- one thing that I one thing that I might just add is that um I mean, one of the things that I think is is curious in some ways about Marx is that there's, uh, at least on some readings, there's um, a notion that um, part of what's aimed at in history is a kind of abolition of morality itself. Um, and how do, how do we make sense of that? And I think, um, David, you asked me a moment whether I had any uh, responses to Barnaby's most recent comments. And uh, actually, I do now that I've uh, thought about it for another moment, because I think that there's... Um, there's the kind of role of determinism in in Marx, which is a huge piece of the story about uh, how various interpreters of Marx have looked at this question of morality and this question of whether there is such a thing as a Marxist morality. Um, One of the things that makes this a complicated uh, story to tell is that um, Marx does think that there are uh, processes that are unfolding in a deterministic manner that make communism more likely all the time. Um, Now, there are also uh, things going on that uh, tend in the opposite direction, right, where the outcome, uh, as is increasingly clear, of uh, the historical development of human beings might be their sort of pathetic demise, right, brought about by themselves in these, uh, in the conditions in which we um, seek to survive, but sometimes fail and sometimes on grand scale, Um, but uh, there is there is also this notion that uh, that the history of human beings attempting to produce and reproduce their um, uh, their conditions of existence is one where, in the process of doing that, they cannot help but to produce the building blocks of communism, right? They necessarily, through that activity, um, make their social circumstances increasingly um, sophisticated and complex and also transform their own relationships towards one another in, in ways that necessarily as a function of their day-to-day attempt simply to survive and to reproduce and reproduce and reproduce their lives, um, they are always 
behaving in ways that produce communism. And that's the piece that uh, is sometimes um, misunderstood or even uh, often, I think, willfully mischaracterized uh, as a kind of fatalism in Marx or a kind of we could say a strict determinism where Marxism is then read as this theory of the uh, inexorable march of history towards communism, uh, one that uh, will go on irrespective somehow of human choosing. And that, of course, is wrong, right? <laughs> that is not right. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about um, the role of human freedom, when we talk about choice, when we talk about um, self-actualization, right? Um, uh, the uh, prol proliferation of human powers and so on. It's, it's important while in the process of pushing back against this bad fatalistic reading of Marx and of Marxism, um, that we also... Um, not shy away from pointing out the uh, the kind of determinism that does still exist for Marx, and that is still a part of his of his view, right? Um, and it is, um, you know, when we think about when we put it, you know, when we put it in terms, for example, like Rosa Luxemburg, right? That you know, it's um, socialism or barbarism, right? There's a there's there is um, one of one of the ways that moralism can be misleading, and this circles back to a comment I made at the beginning, where I said that moralism tends to uh, make it seem as though, well, all we have to do is figure out what's good or what's bad, and then uh, choose accordingly, and the main work is done. I think that this is what ties moralistic perspectives, for example, to liberalism, right? Um, oftentimes, moralism is the quote-unquote morality of liberalism. Um, this notion that uh, we just, we, we figure out what the right conditions of human life are, and then, and then we just have to choose them. And anybody who uh, is bad enough not to choose them, we just criticize them a lot uh, until they get it, right? <laughs> until they come around to right thinking. Um, but the fact is that, uh, you know, part of why moralism is not uh, enough, is not equal to the task here, is that we can figure out what the right thing to do is and not be in a position to do it um, because of conditions that exist completely outside of our choosing um, and ones that uh both determine the kinds of choices we do make, sure, um, but also ones that determine what kinds of avenues of um, transformation are available to us, even once we have um, achieved, you know, right thinking or whatever, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, I think th that... Um, that notion that there that the you know that's the materialism right of a Marxist perspective, um, this uh, this insistence that um, we we cannot really understand the lay of the land morally without understanding what is possible um, completely in spite of ourselves often and. Um, <sighs> 
so this mean this means, for example, um, one of the things that we are constantly doing, right, is we are, um, especially under capitalism, we are we are necessarily producing conditions that are unstable, um, that are in a process of development and change. Um, staying where we are is not an option for us. Um, even if we wanted it to be, it's not on the table. Um, it is completely um, at odds with our with our nature as human beings, right? Because this process of interacting with the world in order to um, survive necessarily introduces changes into the world and into ourselves. So, so that's why that's why just having the same society forever is not an option, even if we thought it was a morally good one. It, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Um, the only two options for us are to um, are to claim right this process of of of, of constant self changing and transformation as our process as ones as one that we um, are uh, that we control consciously right and in a goal directed manner. That's what communism is about. When we talk, it's it's, it's not just um, uh, self-consciousness in a kind of idealist sense, right? It is a, a real, um, uh, um, it is, it is, it is moving from a process where we are constantly changing the world, but in ways that we don't control, don't direct and don't fully comprehend, um, but in ways that are often extremely deleterious and bad for the species, right? Um, it is, it is, communism is the, is the, is the promise, right? Is the analysis of humanity and the world that leads us to the conclusion that if we can um, engage in that process of ongoing transformation in a conscious way, understand our uh, interventions into the world and into ourselves for what they are, um, guide them, that we can take what is this um, uh, deterministic, determ deterministic in the sense of it has to happen. <laughs> this change, this cha changing has to happen. Um, and the and the choice we have is whether we're going to continue to change the world in ways that we don't fully understand or control, or whether we're going to do it in a way that we do understand and do control, and we um, direct that change towards the end of human flourishing, right? That's the option. Um, and so what that means is a kind of reconciliation of, of freedom and determinism, right? Of choosing and then the determinism of um, constant change and movement and development, which is non-negotiable, right? That is just the necessary um, circumstance of human beings existing in the world. I think... Um... A, a premise of the politics that seeks to empower people in the way that Vanessa just put it so beautifully, a politics like Marx's, which hopes whose whose horizon is um, is a kind of self mastery, is is uh, is overcoming alienation so that we uh, exercise control over the conditions of our existence. Um, a kind of premise of that hope is uh, liking people, or at least what they might be. 
Um, I don't think actually that Marx has a category like the human. Um, uh, I think he's much more sort of constructivist about these things, but at least liking uh, uh, some image of, of, of what people can be um, and finding the, the, the seed of that future possibility in the present as Marx does. Otherwise, you're just a dreamer and a prophet. You're not doing politics. Um, and so as Vanessa was talking, I was just thinking that maybe one difference between our kind of communism and moralism is the question of whether you start by looking at people as um, a set of problems to be um, uh, beaten into, into shape. Uh, and that's my difficulty with some languages of communism in the 20th century uh, that talk about a new man, uh, which are all about the idea of, uh, of, of, of shearing us of our moral, uh, uh, of the muck of ages, of our, of our, of our moral flaws uh, in the present and making us into better kinds of people. Um, this is all a language that looks at people and says, oh, God, there's something basically wrong here. Um, uh, versus the kind of politics Vanessa was just describing, and I think rightly attributing to Marx, which which uh, looks at the world and thinks uh, that there's something kind of basically potentially at least magnificent here. Um, and I think in a world of uneven, very uneven, but universal complicity in the reproduction of all kinds of oppressive and exploitative structures, um, a world in which uh, we're all tied to class society for our own reproduction, um, my anti-moral, my perhaps surprising anti-moralistic injunction is that we should be kind to each other, um, because I think that's something that moralism uh, makes more difficult uh, by its its focus instead on on all of the ways in which people are impure and and, and found wanting. And being kind to people doesn't mean um, forgetting all of the awful things that people do to each other. It means um, uh, putting that awfulness, uh, uh, situating it against the backdrop of the structural conditions in which people act in certain ways, rather than rooting it in their essences um, as, as bad human beings. Um, but it can mean being furious about those things and celebrating and prizing and adoring the traditions of the oppressed and exploited in resisting those depredations and in spreading cultures of solidarity against those kinds of cultures of, 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 of cruelty and, uh, and victimization and, and humiliation and degradation. Um, so um, I think that even if one finds it hard in the 21st century to share Marx's 19th century optimism in a trajectory of progress, uh, whether we think it's it's very fixed and determined in Marx's view, or whether we remember that in the Communist Manifesto, he says class struggles end every time, either in the reconstitution of society or in the common ruin of the contending classes. Well, I think I think nonetheless that Marx is a bit, is a bit more deterministic than we're now comfortable with. Um, so I, I think sometimes we we read back into in, into thinkers we like from the past, things that we want to think in the present. And um, it, but but even if we if we if we lack some of his optimism about a, a confident trajectory of progress. Um, I think the mission of finding imminent seeds of something better within the present, rather than rejecting the present and contrasting it to a set of moral norms developed outside it and, and eternal. Um, the lesson of um, treating individuals carefully as, as, as people who have agency and who act in the world and who can do harm or good in the world, uh, but who are also produced by social structures, even if they're the most evil people you can imagine, like Prince Andrew. Um, um, I, I think those kinds of lessons are politically useful because they help us to be generous with one another and to focus both on grand targets and not to get lost in fighting one another, but also to work out what it means to better one another um, uh, 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 without just turning on one another and despising one another. And to do so guided by a sense that our project is not just to make ourselves more angelic, 
but is to make ourselves freer, confident that if we are less oppressed, if we are less constantly harassed, if we're less exhausted um, uh, by all of the pressures of, of an alienating world, um, uh, then we might be able to flourish more. And I think that's the promise of a communist politics that faces every kind of oppression. It's the promise of a communist politics that faces poverty and says, um, uh, I'm not going to blame you uh, for the decisions you take when you're poor, which isn't to say I'm going to give you some carte blanche. Um, it's to say I'm going to think about the structural backdrop. And neither am I just going to think that your boss is, is, is an evil individual who needs to be decapitated and the whole world would be better. I'm going to ask what kind of social world produces wealth and poverty, um, as well as being furious when your boss cuts your wages. It's a world that faces um racism and, uh, you know, I said anti-Semitism is the example I've, I've dealt with in these debates um, and doesn't say, oh, we give a free pass to, to someone uh, who, who racially abuses me or something on the way to synagogue. Um, uh, but, but it is to say, uh, we, we, we ask how these things are produced by certain kinds of social conditions because we have a basic optimism that if social conditions were otherwise, um, we could make a world in which we were all happier. Well, perhaps on that note, I will thank you both, Barnaby and Vanessa, for one of the most, I think, stimulating episodes of Victor's Children that... Um, we've been able to produce so far. Thank you very much for giving us so much to think about. Thank you for having us. Um, if I can just tack something on, I introduced myself as a professor and author, but I'm also a member of the editorial board of Spectre. Um, and I hope everybody will uh, check out our journal, spectrejournal.com, um, where we publish um, all sorts of wonderful Marxist analysis. Barbie, you should also. <laughs> <laughs> I was just about to, David. Uh, David knows what I'm about to say. Well, firstly, I hope he knows. I'm about to say thank you so much to both David and Vanessa for a wonderful conversation, and a special thank you to Vanessa. When I was trying far too, in far too crude and strong kind of terms, to set up a stark binary, <laughs> and saying, "Hey, what are the nuances in this binary?" Which is very, very important. Um, um, uh, so, thank you to both of you, and also, given Vanessa has uh, uh, prodded us to read Spectre, which we all should. Because uh, it's great. I'm involved in a journal called Salvage, which you should also all read. Yes, I, if you don't know those publications, listeners, you should definitely find out about about Spectre. Uh, and it's just SpectreMag.com. Is that the URL? Uh, Spectre Spectre Journal. Right. Yeah. Thank you. SpectreJournal.com, and it's and uh, with it's uh, S P E C T R E. Good and English spelling. Salvage.zone, right? For, that is uh, exactly right. And it appears twice a year. It's a journal of revolutionary arts and letters, um, uh, trying, as I've been talking about in this conversation, uh, uh, trying to uh, reconceive communism from the rubble of the 20th century. Um, and it has essays and, and art and poetry and fiction. Great. Thanks very much, for both of you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Victor's Children. I'd like to thank Jonathan Croker, the producer of Victor's Children, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. I'd also like to thank Posey Legg, who designed the graphic for Victor's Children. If you found the episode worth listening to, please do tell other people about the show, since word of mouth recommendations are especially helpful. If you don't subscribe through your preferred podcast app, please do. And while you're there, please give the show a high rating. It helps to promote us. If you have a suggestion for an episode or some other kind of constructive feedback, feel free to be in touch with me. You can contact me through victorschildren at gmail.com. <laughs>